things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is Monday, May 5th, 2010. This is episode 430. And what we're going to talk about today are the core concepts of modern survivalism. This is something I revisit probably about once every six months. I revisit this entire subject. And I probably should revisit it about, oh, I don't know, probably once a month with all the new listeners that we get. But I try to keep the show varied, and every time I revisit this, I try to bring new things to it. So I'm going to try to do that today. But when I say core concepts, I'm talking about, one, the unifying threads that already existed that as this show evolved came into it. Two, I'm talking about some of the things that we've actually kind of pioneered here at the Survival Podcast, some things that really kind of originated here, Um, at least the way that they're discussed and the way that they're linked together, such as disaster probability and how it interlinks uh, with disaster commonality and those uh, offsetting ratios we'll talk about a little bit today, and some other things. And uh, just why it's so important to do these things in the first place and a little bit of stark reality. Also how we share the information that we have and we make survivalism palatable to other people that we care about, that we'd like to talk to about this stuff. But when you do, they think you're all doom and gloom and there's no positive aspect and you know what I mean, that type of frustration. So we're going to talk about all of that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today is Tactical Response Gear, James Jaeger's operation. Absolutely some of the best and widest assortment of tactical equipment that you'll ever find. You'll also find DVDs with some of the most exceptional training that you will ever uh, lay eyes on on how to use those weapons to defend yourself should you ever need to. Additionally, James has a school that you can go to, a range, where you can take this training in person. You can either do that as range in Tennessee, or you can do that at various locations across the country. Check out Tactical Response Gear and Tactical Response. I'll tell you what, if you're going to get training, you might want to do that from someone that's actually been there and done that, and Mr. Yeager has all over the world, in fact. Next up today is the Lifesaver 4000 from Ready Wave Resources. Um, this is a product that when it first came out I thought was really unique and I was glad to have uh, Robert add it to what he was doing with the show as far as sponsorship from Ready Made Resources. And I was going to buy one. And Robert said, I'll send you one uh, so you can review it. And I said, sure. And one thing led to another and you know everybody's busy and, and one never showed up and I never ordered one. Uh, I've gone ahead and ordered one. Uh, I, I think that it's absolutely important that we have this product in our home, and I want you to consider it for your home as well. I've been looking at some other things. I just looked at a a product from another one of our sponsors called the X-Pack for water filtration. Great product. Different thing that it serves. Different niche that it fills. Uh, Costs less, but has more limitations than a permanent product like the Lifesaver, something that's going to be around for the rest of your life. Uh, It's a product that I think is expensive once when you buy it, and then priceless well, for as long as the filters last, and you can always buy extra filters. 
the product was invented by a gentleman that witnessed the carnage of the tsunami and how scarce fresh water was for people and wanted to do something about it. So he built this product that filters down to .015 microns. Now what that means is it filters out viruses and bacteria and makes just, just about any water safe to drink. So I really recommend you check this product out. Consider adding it to your preps. Next up, check out our gear shop, shirts, hats, challenge coins, if there's any left. I've got some here, and uh, tapping one on the desk right now. And I'm going on a stealth mission tomorrow. That's why there probably won't be a show tomorrow. I'll probably be able to remotely publish one Friday. We'll see about that. Um, but those of you who know what the stealth mission is, if I see you there, I'm going to have some coins. Uh, I may make them available via something like, oh, I don't know, a trade blanket. Uh, but I may uh, be getting a beer off of you if you're a show listener and you don't have one, and it's too late to get one now. So see you tomorrow and have a beer for me. All right, moving on from there. Uh, and if you don't know what that's about, folks, I, I digress. Challenge coins uh, are often used among military people uh, to, uh, to challenge. Do you have one? And if I do and you don't, you're buying a beer. And if I challenge you and you do have one, well, I'm buying you a beer. Anyway, I'd be happy to pass out beers on the Stealth Mission. I'll tell you guys what the Stealth Mission is on Monday when I return. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. So I'll leave it at that today. One thing I want to add, we have a new product that's going into the Member Support Brigade called the Soil Cube that makes really great little blocks of soil so that you can plant seeds in them. And uh, once you do that, uh, those soil cubes can go right into the ground without any kind of pot or anything like that. Great product. Big discount for a member support brigade, folks. I just need to get it into the, uh, into the members brigade, and I'll try to do that today before I get out of here. All right, so let's get into kind of, the, again, the main topic today, which, again, are the core concepts. Why, why do we do this stuff? And let's start out with something that we've kind of made like our, the unofficial mascot of the Survival Podcast is the ant, right? The official mascot is my... Uh, my logo with Val, they call him, the, the, the guy with the headphones and the sunglasses on. Um, and nobody's really sure if he's on his way to the range or just listening to some tunes. But we made the ant the unofficial mascot because of the old Aesop fable, the ant and the grasshopper. And if, if you're a younger person, you may have never heard the story the way that it was originally told. So here's a very quick retelling of the ant and the grasshopper story and an explanation of what's happened to it ever since. And, and, and one, at one time there was these ants, and they were out in a field, and they were, they were working hard, and they worked every day, and they played some too, but they worked. You know, that was their main thing they did. Uh, they'd go out and they'd gather food every day, and they'd take enough food, food home to eat, and they'd take a little bit extra. They'd put that extra food down in their little home. Every day they worked. Every day they worked. And they would pass this grasshopper that would be out in the field playing in the field. And he'd be out there frolicking and fiddling, and he said, hey, why do you guys work so hard? Life is about having fun. Don't you guys know how to have fun? And the ant said, listen, grasshopper, it's, it's going to get really, really cold soon. And when it does, if you don't have anything stored up to eat, if you haven't done anything to make sure that your future's safe, when it gets cold, you will freeze to death, and you will starve to death, and you will die. And the grasshopper said, it's ridiculous. Look at how green the fields are. Look how, how wonderful everything is. And he continued to frolic and mock the ants every day as they did their work. And several months went by. And, of course, the, the grasshopper became more and more convinced that what he was doing made perfect sense. And the ants were completely insane. So, one day, starts to get a little bit colder. 
And a lot of the grass and all the things and all the vegetation that the grasshopper has been eating starts to kind of disappear a little bit at a time. But there's still, you know, actually the cool air feels good and there's still quite a bit to eat and the ants start working harder than ever. And the grasshopper says, this is what you've been worried about? Come on! Then one day, there was no food left and the snow flew. And the grasshopper, shivering with no food and no hope and no place to go, went to the ant's door and knocked and said, can you please take me in? I have nothing. This is where the story splits in two, from the original tale to what we tell our children today. What we tell our children today is the ant said, one time grasshopper, I'll help you out, and brings him into his home, and they feed him, and he gets better, and the grasshopper uh, in the summer comes back out, learns his lesson, and stops being a grasshopper, starts acting like an ant. That's not the original story. The original story is, and the ant said, go to hell. And the grasshopper died. But we've decided we can't tell our children that story that way anymore because it's not nice and it's not sharing and it doesn't instill the values that we're supposed to teach them in kindergarten for socialist utopia. No. Now, please, I'm going to ask you a favor right now, folks. Listen to me. Do not send me the email anymore. Please, I do not need any more of the new grasshopper and ant story with Jesse Jackson and Alice. I don't want it anymore. I get it 15 times a day. Stop sending it to me. All right? But you get my point. We don't tell the story the way that it was originally written anymore. And this show is as much about changing the story back to the truth, not just for the ant and the grasshopper, but all of the stories that we've altered, as it is about what to store. It's about how many of the things and the wisdoms of our forefathers and our grandfathers and our, our ancestors and, and, and all the people that came before us that fought so hard and had so little but yet thrived. And we've forgotten it. It's the lessons that were sent to us through history of the people that set out across this country and they didn't do everything right and they made some real mistakes but when it came down to it they went into a wilderness with nothing and from it they carved the land into a way where it could sustain them. And they were able to deal with whatever came their way, and many of them died. But the ones that survived were the strong and the smart. And we've forgotten all of their wisdom, and we've changed all of their stories from ancient stories that come from old philosophers like Aesop to recent stories about the settling of the West and what the dangers were like. And when I say recent, I mean 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. That's pretty recent, folks. And we've changed all the stories. So the core concept that, that really founds the Survival Podcast, we don't change the story. We accept the story for what it is. Because I'll one-up Aesop here, who originally came up with the end, the grasshopper. Um, if the grasshopper went to the ant's door and knocked on it, even not the ant that would have a door, but if he went to the ant's bed and he did manage to get an ant to come out, do you know what the ants would have done to the grasshopper, folks? They would have grabbed him by his weakened little legs and they would have pulled him into the hole and they would have chopped him up in little pieces and they would have eaten him because ants eat grasshoppers. Happens all the time. That is not too traumatic for a child to hear. What is damaging to a child is to lie and tell them that ants and grasshoppers can be friends because they cannot be friends. They're incompatible with each other. Now, that doesn't mean 
that a prepper and a non-prepper can't be friends. We don't take analogies that far, folks. But we do need to be realistic with people as they're growing up because what it means that the ant and the grasshopper can't be friends is you can't be friends with a criminal. The criminal will kill you. We're teaching our children, basically, if we make nice with the criminal, he won't be a criminal anymore. All right, let's move on from there. One of the other things that we've really made kind of our own here is a concept that I call disaster commonality. And what that really comes down to is that it's not about what can go wrong. We talk about that sometimes. We talk about the threat of economic collapse, about uh, pandemic threats. We talk about natural disasters. We talk about uh, the possibility of an electrical grid failure, about terrorism. There's so many things that could go wrong out there that can put us in a state of need from a, a small, short, acute state of need that's generally localized to ourselves or our homes or our neighborhoods or even our city to a great, huge, global state of need and everything in between. But that's really not what disaster commonality is all about. What disaster commonality says, in all of those events, you're a human. And as a human, you have certain fundamental needs. And wilderness survivalists basically talk about the same thing. They just don't call it disaster commonality. And those are the needs to breathe oxygen, which either you have that or you don't. And if you don't, you're dead and your problems are over. Okay? So the three-second or the three-minute rule, I'm not really too interested in that one. All right? Because if you're not breathing, trust me, you'll try to find a way to breathe. You'll sort that out as a human. But the second is we need... Uh, we need shelter from the elements. We need food. We need water. If we have food, shelter, and water, we can survive. As people, as humans, we also have desires. And we have a desire for comfort and some level of regularity that allows us to stay in a positive mental state and a mental state that makes us logical where we can continue to adapt as the situation changes. And even if we have food, shelter, and water, if we don't maintain that positive mental state, if we don't maintain that, that logical ability to progress and adapt, as the situation changes, we can end up putting ourselves in the greater harm's way or even losing our lives because we've lost the proper mental state. So we need all of those, food, shelter, water, and a proper mental state. Disaster commonality helps us with that. Because instead of worrying about what could go wrong, we focus on those four things. We make sure that we have food. We make sure that we have water. We make sure that we're going to have shelter. And if our shelter would fail, we have a plan already in place. See, here's the thing. The positive mental state doesn't come from being a great positive thinker. It doesn't come from going to eBay, folks, and downloading a... Uh, or not down, uh, buying an old copy of Anthony Robbins' DVDs and listen to him tell you how you can break a board and accomplish anything. That's a fictitious positive mental state. It's a belief apart from reality. It's not necessarily useless, but it's useless in a disaster. Because it's just believing everything will be super with no plan doesn't work, and the belief falls apart as soon as there's no concrete underneath it. But if we're willing to accept the harsh reality that things can go wrong, put systems to, to supplement the loss of those support systems in place based on the commonalities that I just mentioned, the needs that any disaster creates for individuals, 
and mentally simulate if something went wrong, what would we do, where would we go, we already have a plan of action, then it's very easy to stay in that positive mental state because we have the one thing that is more important than anything else in a disaster, hope, real hope based on reality. Because it makes me think of an old movie. It was called Hope Floats, and I hated it. And it's those chick flicks, and my wife wanted to watch it. And she said to me one day in her typical woman way, but hope really does float. And I said, yes, yeah, so does crap. <laughs> and she thought that was terrible. But that is my point, folks. I don't want hope that floats. I want hope that's anchored. I, it, that is anchored in some reality that can weather a storm. And that hope comes from preparation. And I'll tell you right now, if you don't take this stuff seriously yet, if somebody's tuned you into this, if you think you have all the time in the world, I'm not saying you don't have plenty of time, but you don't have all the time in the world. What I'm telling you is the second, the second that those systems around you that you are dependent on fall apart, you will understand what I mean when I say hope floating is useless because what will happen to your hope at that point is it will float away. It will be gone. Because you won't know what to do. Because you have never been willing to put yourself through the little bit of discomfort that's necessary to plan. To accept the fact that those systems could fail. Because they can fail, folks. They can fail like that. And that's how they fail usually. They usually don't fail like over a six-month period where we start to see them fall apart. Or even if you do see them fall apart, the people that aren't paying attention don't notice. It seems like one day there was food at the store, and today there's not food at the store. Because a storm came and people panicked and went out and bought everything. Or because the truckers keep watching the price of gas and diesel, folks. It's almost three bucks now here. When it goes to about five and a half, and it will sooner or later, without a big raise, the truckers just park the rigs and they don't drive anymore. It's called a strike. It's happened before. It will happen again. The question is, how long will it last? There's a lot of things like that out there. And without that preparation, having a mental state that's, that, that's positive during that time is all but impossible. We have to accept these things if we're going to prepare. There's another thing that we have to accept if we're going to be preppers, if we're going to be survivalists, if we're going to prepare for disaster. It's kind of a shocking statement when you think about it. But if we are to prepare, we must accept the harsh reality that we can never be fully prepared. We have to accept that right now, this second, from day one. I will never be 100% prepared for every disaster that could ever strike me. Now, this is even ruling out like the catastrophic all-life-ending disaster, a giant comet the size of Rhode Island running into planet Earth. Your problems are pretty much over at that point. So let's rule that one out, because we're all dead. All right. Everybody launches every nuclear weapon that was ever created at the same time. Somebody's going to tell me how you could survive. I don't want to live in the hole ground for 20 years. I would probably sit on the roof and watch the, the mushroom clouds go off if it was all of them, and it was no way you're going to make it. All right. So leaving those out, even sticking to things like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, disease pandemics, economic collapse, you know, the, the, the possible things, the things that long enough in time are probable. It's not whether they're probable tomorrow morning, but if we take a long enough look through history, they've happened over and over and over and over. And to believe that they won't happen again and that there's no way that they can affect us is, is kind of arrogant. So if we're going to accept that, 
then we have to accept the fact that we're human beings with limitations. We have financial limitations. We have lifestyle limitations. We have commitment limitations, how much we're willing to commit to. We have a life that we want to continue living as best we can while things are good. Because there's no point in living scared or hiding somewhere in the middle of nowhere waiting for something that may never happen. We have spatial limitations that are tied to our financial limitations. Our homes are only so large. Our, our land is only so large. There's only so many things that we can do. There are limitations and we will never be fully prepared and that's okay and we try to prepare anyway. Those of you who are spiritual people will understand what I'm talking about. It's like the religious connotation that you can never be perfect, but yet you strive for it anyway. Because in the pursuit of something that's unattainable, you will accomplish more than you ever thought you could. And that's how prepping works. I also want to uh, talk to you a little bit about the media today, and I want to explain something to you if you've never really thought about it before, a why behind the media. I want to explain to you why the media constantly shows us the worst possible horrors, the worst of humanity, uh, the worst things that people do, the biggest disasters that ever occur, but always kind of ends up with everything is just fine, everything is super, don't worry about it, it'll all be okay. Well, they show you the worst, and they show you things a lot of times worse than they even really are. They manufacture a false reality that's even worse than real reality, which is already bad enough. Why? Because it gets you to tune in. Because human beings are fascinated with suffering and misery and danger. We're fascinated with it. They end with everything is just super because we're fascinated with it to the point that it doesn't affect us. We're very uncomfortable with a disaster in our backyard. We're very uncomfortable when a man sitting at home watching TV while his wife and daughters are out shopping is minding his own business and someone breaks into his home, bashes his skull in, and murders him. It's very unsettling. It happened right in my neighborhood about two years ago, I guess now. It's very unsettling, trust me, I can tell you. But we're fascinated when it happens in another part of the world that we're insulated with by space and time. So what the media does is they feed the fascination with violence and misery. And they cover their sex by saying everything is just fine for you. And that's why you cannot trust them. Because if they were telling you the truth, they wouldn't sensationalize the bad and they wouldn't ignore the good. And they wouldn't lie to you, just like we lie to our children with new versions of the ant and the grasshopper. They would say, and everybody should be prepared for this at all times, because it can happen where you are, too. But that might make you change the channel to somebody that's a little more perky and saying, and everything's just super. That's why they do that, and that's why you can't trust them. The other thing I really want to talk about today is... The reason that so many people that you talk to just can't get their head around the need for what we do. To, to have 60 days worth of extra food. To have a means of defense. To have an evacuation plan, an emergency plan that, that really amounts to little more than a glorified and expanded address book. Which they have the address book if they throw a couple maps in there, a few documents, a few additional things, they'd have what we have. Right? So, why do they feel 
that this is not a problem? Why do they feel that it's not really necessary? And I'll tell you why. All you have to do is go to Tom Thumb or Kroger or Albertsons or Walmart or any store that has food and stuff. And all you have to do is stand in the middle of that store and look at all the stuff. And that's what that person is thinking, even if it's subconscious and they don't realize it. How the hell could we run out of everything? Do you know how much stuff is out there? That's what this person I'm not saying they're right. They're absolutely wrong. That's what they're thinking. You know what? There's, there's 20 stores within 10 miles of this place that have aisles that are half a mile long with food from one end to the other stacked to the roof. And I know they got a warehouse with extra food in the back somewhere. And trucks come every day, and there it is. That's the part they don't get. Trucks come every day. If the trucks stop coming, that food will go from the ceiling to the floor in a matter of about two to three days. Because of a concept that we have created in our modern society called just-in-time inventory. What just-in-time inventory means is I don't want any more inventory in my store, in my shelf, or my warehouse, or on a truck rolling than is absolutely required. So I know I can't get that number perfect, so I hire really smart accountants and inventory control specialists and computer programmers to run inventory scenarios for me, and I over-yield them by about 10% to cover my ass. And if I am a warehouse operator, I know what's going out. I have my accounts payable, my accounts receivable. I know what my orders are. I have my traditional forecasting. I know how seasonality works. And I take all of that information, and that gives me a list of how much and what to buy and when to buy it. And I try to have stuff coming in the back of my warehouse as it's going out the front. So it's like it just either in my warehouse, if, if I didn't buy anything, for 10 days, it would be empty if I'm running it right. In fact, it would probably be empty in five. It would probably be empty in five, and there'd be some of the stuff that moves a little bit slower. But the high-moving goods, five days, if I have more than five days, I'm doing my job wrong. Because inventory is like debt to a business. Inventory's debt. Until it's moved, sold, and billed for, you've paid for it, you haven't sold it. It's like sitting on interest-bearing debt. And the longer you wait to sell it, the more it hurts you. Because the less new inventory you can buy to fill new orders. So that's why this concept exists. I'm not even saying it's bad. It's actually business-wise a brilliant move. And it's how so many of these companies are able to make millions and billions of dollars on razor-thin margins because of this concept. And they do it at the store. They do it at the warehouse. They do it in the trucks that are rolling. That truck needs to be full from head to ass, stacked to the top. And if it needs to stop at two places instead of one, fine. It needs to be fully loaded. It needs to be running. And if it's not necessarily necessary for it to be full, it needs to be parked and not billing hours and not spending fuel. So what happens when we create an entire society, which we have based on just-in-time inventory? And where everything from warehouse to field is managed that way. Well, when one hiccup... Hits the works when the truckers don't roll for a week. You know? When a trade embargo hits and something that's always imported doesn't get imported. When anything like that happens, the supply dries up almost overnight. 
and there are disasters that are much larger in scope than what we've seen in recent years that could impact this and have a much bigger impact on it. And I don't think people don't realize that. I don't think that people understand in general that if you just didn't stock Kroger for like a week, it would be almost empty. But that's how quick the food would be depleted. And there's a few things that might stick around for two weeks, but most everything would be gone in a week. And even the stuff that would generally make it two weeks to three weeks, as soon as the other food starts to dry, people start panicking, and when they do that, they grab everything they can. Another big, big important thing to understand, in a disaster, the disaster is less dangerous than the response of the people who are unprepared for it. Your fellow man who is completely unprepared becomes the biggest liability in the world for you when disaster strikes and he's unprepared. Because he will panic, and he will be irrational, he will lose hope, he will lose that positive mental state, and that's when people get violent. When you've lost hope, when you figure, I'm dead anyway, and this is the only thing I can do to survive, you'll do things you would never normally do. These are things to think about when it comes to putting together our plans. The other thing I want to try to kind of not beat up too much today, but we do have to think about, is the fact that we cannot rely on government to save our asses in these situations. And I'm not a government basher. I'm not one of the people that were like was blaming the government for everything wrong during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I, I don't blame the government for everything during wrong during any, any disaster, especially a natural disaster. They do show us their incompetence, but more than incompetence, they show us their limitations in these disasters. There's only so many people they can get to so fast with so many resources, even with rather small geographic disasters. Hurricane Katrina was a terrible disaster. I don't mean to misstate it. Um, Greensburg, Kansas, with the tornado that hit there, was a massive disaster. I don't mean to misstate what I'm about to say. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Back in the 90s, the Oklahoma City tornado that was a mile and a half wide, when you looked at the carnage, it seemed so overwhelming. If you look at what's going on in Iceland right now, instead of listening to them bitch, the planes can't fly in Ireland today. That's what they're complaining about. If you were to go look at what it's actually done to Ireland, roads gone, people's lives destroyed, people's farms with five inches of toxic ash sitting on top of them, fields that they can't have their cat, their, their, their animals eat in and won't grow anything now. Buildings that have, if you look at all of these disasters from recent things like the Iceland volcano, the Haitian earthquake, the Chilean earthquake, the uh, earthquake in Baja, California, uh, the hurricanes, uh, the tornadoes, you look at them all, they all look so big. They're not that big. They're not that big compared to Total collapse of the United States dollar. Okay? Not that big compared to that. Not that big compared to a failure of the United States electrical grid, North American electrical grid, for either natural or man-made reasons. Both of them possible. A super volcanic event like something that lies underneath Yellowstone. Highly improbable you'll ever see that. But if you did, and what is my point there? That if the government reaches its limit in a Hurricane Katrina, a Hurricane Ike, a Greensburg, if it reaches its limit in those instances, Homestead Air Base back in the early 90s with Hurricane Andrew, if that stretches the capabilities of our response teams to their limit, then what does something bigger do? 
where there's not a safe base of operations 20 miles away to set everything up and use as a command center and slowly uh, pick away at what's happened. What, what if the disaster is everywhere? And if the disaster's everywhere, it's one thing. And if it's a local disaster with help coming, but you happen to be in the center of it, just because of the way it went down, and you're last to get help, does it really matter for you? No. We cannot rely on government. We cannot rely on our neighbor. The only person we can rely on is us. And that's not a derogatory statement about anybody. It's just simple reality. Because nobody cares about you as much as you do. No one cares about your children as much as you do. No one cares about your wife or your husband as much as you do. No one gives a crap about you when their own are threatened. They will see to their own first, and then if they can, they will help you. That's not bad. It's not a diss on them. It's not disrespectful. It's reality. Because I do it too. As much as I would want to help my neighbor... I'm going to make sure my wife and my son and my dog is safe before I go see if I can help out my neighbor. Because that's my duty as, as the man of the house. And my wife would do the same thing as the woman of the house. We take care of the people under our roof first. As long as the roof's still there, and if it's not there, then we take care of them wherever we are. That's human nature. It's important that we accept that. If we don't accept that, it's going to be very hard. To really be prepared, at least as prepared as we can be. If we're going to be real right now, we also have to look at the economy. We really do. We have to accept the fact that, yeah, I'm saying the economy is going to get a lot better before it gets a lot worse again. But when it gets worse again, it's going to be a lot worse than it ever was before. If we're going to be realists, we have to accept that our economy cannot actually recover for real. It can't. It's over. It's done. It's dead. Now, there can be... Uh, like when a person's dying of a disease that's going to kill them, and it's terminal. It's a terminal cancer patient. And sometimes terminal cancer patients lay in bed for what you think is the last week of their life. And then one day they stand up and they get out of that bed, and they seem to actually be making a recovery. And maybe for a day or two, they actually feel pretty good. And then the second onset comes on, and their time is up. So it's a very sad thing, but... To me, it's always, if when it does happen, on rare cases, you feel good that the person had that last sense of normalcy. Our economy will probably do that at least once, if not twice, before the death now. That imagined cure that's not real. The underlying principles in our economy say that it's over. We have debt we can't pay that will continue to grow. We're at a point where very soon... Almost 100% of federal income tax money for me and you as individuals will be used to pay nothing but the interest on the debt. Nothing but the interest on the debt. One more time. Nothing but the interest on the debt. 100% of federal income tax will be used for interest on the debt. That's where we're headed. We have a $100 trillion hole. $100 trillion hole in the economy between now and 2050. It's actually bigger than that. It's, our, it's 105 trillion is our best, our best uh, estimate, according to David Walker, who was basically the United States' chief accountant under two presidents, okay, with no political axe to grind. Just the bean counter. Our chief bean counter says 103 trillion dollar hole. Can't fill it. Nothing we can do. Every year we wait to do something about it, it gets worse. We've waited too long. The hole's there now. 
putting that in perspective for you, there's not $100 trillion of everybody's currency everywhere in the world. It doesn't exist. There's no $100 trillion. We can't take everybody's money. We take all the U.S. dollars that exist and put them in one big pile. Uh, best estimates on the M3 is $13 trillion. So we have debt that outweighs all the money. We just had Congressman Ron Paul say to Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Board, the Federal Reserve uh, Board, so you monetize the debt. Bernanke's response, nodded agreeingly, right? And then he said, so you created the money out of thin air. And Bernanke, Benjamin Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve, being questioned by a United States congressman, when the congressman stated you created the money out of thin air, did what? Nodded agreeably, yes. Put the video up for you today, folks, so you can take a look at it in today's show notes. The economy is done. Again, I think we have some good economic times ahead before the bad, but long term, whether I'm right and it's you know a five to seven year cycle at this point before the real tailspin, or whether I'm wrong and Gerald Salenti's right and it's sometime next year, or whether we're both wrong and somehow there's some kind of 20-year bubble at the end of this thing, one way or another, unless we completely change and overhaul it, it's done. It cannot be sustained this way. That's a fundamental reality. If we don't accept that, there's no way that we can really prep. We cannot be putting, creating money out of thin air. And the guy that is in charge of creating and controlling our money supply has admitted that we created out of thin air in the halls of Congress. And our chief accountant has said that we have a $100 trillion hole. And the solution, of course, will be to just create $100 trillion more dollars. If you don't see where that leads to, it's hard for me to help you from that point forward. It's not necessary that you are a true believer in... Uh, pure Austrian economics, it's not necessary that you totally believe me when I say that the economy has to eventually fail, but if you're not willing to accept the fact that what we're doing is fundamentally flawed, you don't realize how bad it really can become. And you don't realize that our number one threat to the sanctity, security, and sovereignty of our nation right now is monetary policy. And that the vast majority of people and the vast majority of folks in our government are ignorant about monetary policy. Those are the words of Ron Paul, again, congressman from the state of Texas. Ignorance about monetary policy is one of our hugest threats. And it is something that sooner or later we're going to have to pay for. And if you don't pay for it because you're an older person, your children will. It's a good idea to be prepared now so that when that day comes, you have the ability to pay the bills and I mean your own personal bills. That's why you make sure that you have real commodities as part of what you're doing. So that's land that you own and don't owe your soul against. That's land that produces food for you. That's gold. That's silver. That's lifetime purchases. That's always buying the very best you can that will last the longest. That's about always being thrifty and never being cheap. Expensive things are expensive once. Cheap things are expensive over and over and over again. And when you have to rely on them and they fail... That's when they get really expensive. I also want to make sure that people understand something about, you know, some of the things I say here. I make fun of conspiracy theorists sometimes. I call them a tinfoil half brigade. And, folks, there are some people that they are way out there 
We have some folks on our forum in, that, that post to the Tinfoil Hat Brigade board all the time, and I just read what they write, and I facepalm, and I'm just like, oh my God, where do these people come up with this? But it's important that we understand something about conspiracy theorists and people that are a little bit out there. They're not always wrong, even when they're not right. And what I mean by that is sometimes they have this elaborate, crazy-ass conspiracy theory with a million things. In, I mean, you might as well just get to the point where there's a guy in the center of the earth pulling a bunch of joysticks and making everything happen by the time they're done with it. People that have read, and if you want a real great read, read the uh, Illuminatus Trilogy. People that have read that like 80 times looking for the truth within it. Huge book, by the way. Um, those kind of people. Huge, elaborate conspiracy theory. But then you look at one component of it, and you go, they're not wrong about this piece. And because they're nuts, society says everything they say is nuts, and they ignore this one piece. For instance, the people that think we're all going to be rounded up and taken away because our names are on a list, and we're either going in a blue line or a yellow line, and the FEMA camps are going to get us! Right? And I just think that's going too far, folks. I'm sorry. But, when they say, Rex 84, they're not wrong about it, are they? If you don't know about Rex 84, look it up. Something our government admitted that they were looking into, an operation, training exercises. So the problem that, that we have as a society is we've decided that people that go too far are not just wrong about the things that they go too far with, but they're wrong about everything from the point that they leave what we're comfortable with. We need to pay attention to those folks at times. That's why even though I pick on them sometimes, that's why even though I come down on people like Alex Jones for being alarmist, I say I agree with about 80% of what he has to say. Let me be clear on that because I've been misunderstood on that one. I agree with 80% of the points that he makes. I don't agree with him 80% of the time that he's running his mouth. Because he spends most of the time talking about 20% of his points. So it's not a temporal thing. It's a point thing. And, there's some, and that's the thing we need to understand about conspiracy theories, both so we give them proper credit, and so that we don't get sucked into them. Okay? That, we, that anything that's remotely believable has to have some basis in some level of fact. But there's a point where we, we, we separate fact and fiction, and we start to go off. And we need to be able to follow these things to the point where that bifurcation happens and say, at this point, I've gone far enough down the rabbit hole. I want to stay here grounded in reality, but don't ignore them. Because when they came out and they said, ah, oh, the Bilderbergers, everybody said, there's no such thing. It's nonsense. It doesn't exist. Now everybody knows it exists. Everybody admits it. They talk about it happening on the news now. And, but they say, ah, oh, there's nothing to see here. Don't worry. It's just powerful people meeting. They're not determining the fate of the world. And they're not determining... Because here's, here's, the, here's the bifurcation on this kind of stuff. The conspiracy theorist says they all meet and they say, this is what we're going to do, and then they go do it. No. They all meet and they say, this is what we're going to attempt to make happen. And then they do their damnedest to make it happen, and they pull a lot of it off. A little bit more plausible than they just say, we're going to do it, and it happens. Like it's flipping a freaking switch. I say this all the time. Politics, economics, and the global play, the global show, right? The big magician show that they put in front of you. People think of it like 
wrestling. And I don't mean real wrestling. I mean good old-fashioned fake wrestling, WWE wrestling, right? Where everybody knows what's going to happen before it starts. All the moves are perfectly choreographed. The winner is already determined. We know who's going to have the belt and for how long. That is not the geopolitical, economic world that we live in today. If it were, they would already have everything they wanted, they would have already done it, and we would already be in their global governance. It would have already happened. And that's where I differ from those people, the conspiracy theorists, because they believe that. I believe it's much more like boxing. Boxing is tightly controlled. Entry is tightly controlled. They have a lot of say over who's going to be the next you know, heavyweight champion, who's going to unify the title when it's never going to happen. They have a lot of control about that. Promoters and, and the like and, and the entire organization, and there's a lot of shiftiness going on behind the scenes. But when the two guys get in the ring and start beating the hell out of each other, they don't know or they don't care. They're really beating the hell out of each other. They're really hurting each other, and both sides are trying to win. And as much as the odds makers can say, you know, six to one or whatever, it only takes one good right hook from the guy that's supposed to lose, and he wins. And there's a limit to how much control can be enacted in a sport like boxing. That's the economic, geo-social, political world that we live in. It's like boxing. The fight's real. The factions are real. Some of the things that look like divisive things are not divisive. They're actually alliances. But there's no total control. There's no simple pulling the trigger. And what we do does matter. And that's why I even bother to go into this. Because if you believe the conspiracy theorists, everything's controlled, it's the new world order, blah, blah, all, all, on and on and on and on and on. Why do we care? It's over then. Forget it. Right? Might as well go get that bunker out in Idaho, start living on MREs and waiting for the black helicopters. There's no point. That's not very positive. And as much as we talk about some dark subjects here, I try to be very, very positive. I want people to have things in their life that matter, that bring them joy and happiness. Because without that, what the hell is the point of surviving? You know? That's why I say, if all the mushroom clouds go at the same time, if a giant comet is coming toward the earth and going to wipe out all life, and if crawling into the hole would give me an extra six months of life, but that would be it, six months of darkness and a hole in the ground, I'm going to drink a beer on the roof. If we get a life-ending event, and I mean for everybody, there's any chance of survival, in any way, I'll fight for survival. That's what the show's about. But in one of those scenarios, what's the point? And that's the point, conspiracy theorists. That if everything's completely controlled, if everything's pre-written, if it's just like the WWE and so-and-so's just going to get his belt back on this day, why do you fight? Why fight? The only reason you fight is because you believe that it's not pre-written. So there you go on that. The next thing I want to talk about is how do you talk to people without getting lumped in with the conspiracy theorist and the nutjob survivalist in the face paint that's hiding in the woods right now listening to me on his iPod going, you jerk, you don't like me and I don't like you. Well, why do you listen? Hey, if that's you, honestly, I don't care. I'm happy for you if that's what you want. But for the rest of us, how do you talk to that next-door neighbor that's a doctor or a you know, guy you play golf with or a computer scientist and say, hey, you need to pay attention to this too? Well, I've found three questions that lead people to some level of willingness to discuss openly the concept of prepping because of recent events 
and reality and intrinsic human understanding. And they're all about one event, but they eventually lead people to accept the fact that there's other things to be concerned about. And those questions are, do you ever think we could have a real pandemic? Not this swine flu nonsense. Do you think we could ever have a disease that's really dangerous in any way that it could ever happen? Something that if you get exposed to it, half the people exposed to it get it, and 10% die even. And you know what people always say? Could it happen? Well, sure it could. I don't know how likely it is. They say, I'm just saying, could it? Let them convince themselves that it could happen, because they already believe it. They just need to give themselves permission to. Once they do that, the next question is, do you think if that ever happened that maybe the government would say the only way to control this disease at this point since it's spreading out of control is quarantine. Take all the people that we already know are sick and lock them into one place and tell people you can't go anywhere for a few weeks or even maybe a month. And most people will go, well, now him and Hobbit, but when they really think about it, they go, well, if it was bad enough, if enough people were dying, if it was enough out of control, there really isn't anything else you can do. Then you ask the third question. If that happened, how long would you stay well-fed and comfortable in your home? And when most people look at it, they realize it's about a week or less. And you don't have to say anything else. All you have to do at that point is start answering questions as they come. And don't push. People don't like to be pushed. They like to be helped. They like to be led. You don't lead people from behind, folks. Okay? Story for you here, real quick, as we get toward the end of this show. It's an old story, and I give credit if I can remember where I heard it. I think it was a preacher that told me this story one time, but I, I just don't remember where I heard it. And the story is there was a, a king that, that, that watched over two different lands, and he was standing on a hill where you could see both lands. And he was standing there with his young son, the prince. And the prince was looking at the lands, and he realized, standing next to his father, that in one land... The sheep that were led by the shepherds were always sick. They made it, they survived, but they were sick. They didn't have as many babies, they didn't produce as fine a wool, they didn't produce as good a meat. And in this other land that he could see off the other side of the hill, the sheep were always healthy. The sheep always looked well fed. They produced some of the finest wool that came out of any of the king's lands. In fact, they were exporting this wool to other parts of the world. Because it was so desirable. The meat was sweet and succulent. The ewes always had lambs every, every se uh, season. And the lambs always grew healthy and strong. And they were very, very different flocks. But the grass looked the same, and the water looked the same, and even the shepherds looked the same. And confused by this, the young prince says to his father, Why? Why is there this difference? And he said, Son, over in that land... The shepherds walk behind their sheep and they beat them with their canes and they drive them from pasture to pasture. And so they're sickly and weak because they're driven. In this land over here, the shepherds walk in front of their sheep. They use their staffs to protect them, but they're led from in front. And that's why they're healthy and strong. If you want to lead people to preparedness, if you want to lead people to modern survivalism, if you care about that one person you just want to understand, then you lead from the front and you lead by example and you ask questions and you answer. You do not drive and you do not push. Pushing has nothing to do with leading. Driving has nothing to do with leading. 
Leading is about being in the front. The guy in the front is the one that takes the first bullet. And because he's willing to risk it, he buys the confidence of those that follow him. little bit on leadership there thrown in today. I want to say real quickly, uh, without beating this subject up deep, because I've done entire shows on it, but if you are a survivalist, debt, specifically consumer debt on credit card crap, has no place in your life. The only thing that I think it makes sense to ever borrow money for are houses and cars. Cars because we kind of have to in certain situations, uh, and houses because we definitely have to in most situations. But we should always be working to pay that debt off as quickly as possible. And we should always be doing the best we can for ourselves to stay out of debt in any situation. I'll leave it at that today. All I'm telling you is if you're sitting on $20,000 worth of credit card debt, you are not a survivalist. You're not a modern survivalist. You're not even a prepper. If you're sitting on $20,000 worth of debt and you're working your ass off to get rid of it, you're a prepper. It's okay if you have it as long as you're going to fix it and you're never going there again. If you think it's okay... I'm wasting my time with you because you're never going to get any of the things you need done done because you're walking around with a cancer eating you away from the inside. And you're trying to run a marathon dragging a Volkswagen wrapped around your neck with a chain. That is your debt. And the cost of debt, folks, is not measured in dollars. It's measured in years. I've talked to people that paid off $50,000 worth of credit card debt and they had to sacrifice for 10 years to do it. It was a 10-year prison sentence. Might have been a fairly nice prison, but it was 10 years of their lives gone. They can't get back. That's the cost of debt. If you're not in it, stay out of it. If you're in it, get out of it. It's like a jail. And just like the guy that wants to break out of jail with the little tiny spoon that he smuggled in that's chipping away at the wall behind the toilet, it might take you 10 years to chip that hole away and slide through that wall and climb your ass to freedom. But if you don't start chipping at it now, you ain't going to get there in 10 years. You ain't going to get there in 20. And you have nothing but time because it's a prison and they're never going to open the door for you. You're going to have to break out. That is what debt is. Next, I want to talk about, even though I talk about things like economic collapse and pandemic, because those are two of the biggest credible threats that I think we have that are large threats in, in the near term. Prepping for a specific event will eventually lead to failure. You don't prep for economic collapse. You don't prep for a hurricane. You don't prep for anything. You prep for everything. You prepare to deal without systems of support focused on that commonality of disaster. You make sure you have food, water, shelter, and enough comfort to stay in a positive mental state. You make sure that you have a plan to evacuate. You make sure you have a plan to stay put. You make sure you have a plan to get in touch with everybody that you would ever need to get in touch with. You make sure that you have pragmatic preparations, the things everybody's supposed to do and many people don't that are simple, like college funds and life insurance. Boring stuff. You make sure that you have some level of insurance for your financial assets. You make sure that you have some level of insurance uh, for disability and things like that. So from the boring to the things that we really like to talk about in the survival world, like making sure you have a gun and know how to use it in case your home's invaded, and everything in between, you focus on that as a 
a means of maintaining your individual sovereignty as a human being in any situation. And then when a disaster comes, you respond to the disaster. You don't prepare for the specific disaster. And here's why doing that will lead to failure. Y2K was the perfect example. I saw it as it was being built up, and I realized how many people would never stick with it after January 1st. Because here's what happens. You're freaking out. You spend all kinds of money and all kinds of resources. You make all kinds of sacrifices. And you fill the garage and you buy that big giant generator that you don't even know how it works. And you go get 400,000 gallons of water or whatever it is. And then the day that the world is supposed to explode comes and it goes. And guess what happens? Absolutely, positively, nothing and then you feel like an idiot. And that neighbor who told you you were an idiot starts to seem like he was right. And then I buy your generator on Craigslist for pennies on the dollar. And my best friend buys all of your MREs on, on eBay for pennies on the dollar. And you fall out and you go back to sleep and you never wake up again. That's what happens when you prepare for an event. And the people that are already starting to freak out about the concept of 2012... That's what's going to happen to them. So if you want some really good deals on prepper stuff, assuming the economy doesn't collapse in 2012 or 2011 or next month, assuming that we're in the same situation we are now or a little bit better on January 1st, 2013, go to eBay and Craigslist and you will find really good deals because of that concept. So we don't prepare for events. We prepare to deal with our systems of support core tenet of modern survivalism. It's also why we have to prepare for nothing to go wrong. That's the only way to prepare for anything to go wrong. And what I mean by that is we have to follow the core mission of the show. Helping you live the life you want. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Everything we do to prepare for disaster improves our life even if nothing goes wrong. Tenet 1. Storing food saves us money. Adds convenience to our lives. Gives us confidence. Allows us to live life boldly. If you know that you'll keep a roof over your head and food on your table and the lights on for six months and you're being treated without income and you are being treated like shit at work, you will tell your boss, how's this for an expression, give them the middle finger, write that letter of resignation, walk out the door boldly and find something better in your life. If you know that if you don't get paid next week, you're going to default on your mortgage, the lights are going to go off, and you're not going to be able to feed your kids, and you're going to be trying to survive on $200 in unemployment that you'll have to wait four weeks to get your first check for, and it'll be too late, and six months after that, instead of being in a new place, you'll be in foreclosure. When your boss treats you like shit, you will lower your head, and you will take it, and you will accept whatever menial existence that you have. What we do is not just about disaster. It's about improving the quality of your life every day. It's about developing individual sovereignty. The more independence you have from the systems, the less dependent you are, the more you get to make your own choices instead of doing what you have to do. How many times have you said the words to yourself, I don't want to do this, I have to. I don't want to do this, I have to. You ever say that? Do you ever get freaking tired of that? Well, then maybe it's time for you to take responsibility for yourself and do something about it so occasionally you can say, I don't want to do that, so I ain't going to do it. 
And on that note, I want to leave you with a very positive thought, but a very deep question for you, because I may not be here tomorrow. I probably won't for you. And I may not be here Friday. This may be a week with only two shows in it. I'm sorry, folks. i got to go somewhere. I'm towing the RV, I'll tell you that much. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a trip, about five hours from here. And it's not north. <laughs> Some of you know and go, why will he just say it? Because I don't want to. Anyway, but I want to leave you with something profound. I want you to start asking your question, yourself a question. And if I don't talk to you again before the weekend, I want you to carry it with you if you don't have an answer all through the weekend. That is, what do you want? What do you really want? Again, what do you want? Now, some of you are going, that's kind of a dumb question. And the reason you're doing it is you're deflecting it, because it's a very tough question to answer. So, to make it a little bit more clear to you, I want to put it to you this way. In the words of Richard Bach from his great book, Illusions, which if you've ever read it, you need to do yourself a favor and read Illusions and also read Jonathan Livingston Siegel, those two books by Richard Bach. But in Illusions, there's a little line. It's not even in the main storyline. It's in this little thing that's in the front of the book written like it's on oily pages from when this guy was flying around barnstorming. And the guy says to a crowd... What would you do if God appeared to you straight right now and said to you, I command one thing of you, no matter what I say I command it of you. Should the man do what he is commanded? And the crowd shouts, of course he should, no matter how hard, no matter how tough. If God commands it, the man should do it. And then he says to the crowd, and what would you do if God stood before you, right to your face, and you knew it was him? And he said, I command above all things that you be happy on the earth. And the next line is, and the crowd fell silent. I want you to think about that. If God appeared to you right now and said, the only thing I command of you, the only obligation that you have is to be happy, and you had no excuses, what would you do? It's a tough question to answer. But if you can find the answer, and some people don't trust themselves enough for that answer. They say to themselves, well, I, you could be abusive and hurt people then. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Because if you even say that, you couldn't be happy hurting people. You couldn't be happy being abusive to people. Some people could, but if the question bothers you, you can't do it. Because you wouldn't be happy being a prick, being miserable, and harming people. You would be happy with something in your life. What would it be? What would you do if all the excuses are removed? And when you find that, you start to realize that what you want is probably not that extravagant. It's probably not that amazing. It probably wouldn't get you on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Remarkably simple what you really want in your life. The one thing that I think most of us will find in common is we want liberty, and with liberty comes choice. We want the ability to make our own decisions about what we do. When we get up in the morning, we want self-direction. We want to be positive, and then from there, I can't help you. You have to fill the rest of the blanks in yourself. 
But that's what survivalism is really all about. It's about answering that, that question. It's about giving yourself permission to be happy. Because the only way you're going to be happy is to know what you want and to build your life around having it. Why would we sit here and, and create systems of redundancy that alleviate the need for support systems, that make us able to survive catastrophe, and then refuse to understand the asset that that gives us to live life under our own control when there is no disaster? Why can't we make the connection easily that if we prepare for disaster for 10 to 20 years with simple lifestyle things that are better for us today, that we get to retire early? If I don't need Tom Thumb to be open to survive tomorrow, I sure as hell don't need a job to survive tomorrow. I'm not talking about becoming one of the wealthiest people in the world by measuring dollars. I'm talking about being among the wealthiest people in the world by measuring quality of life, personal satisfaction, and individual liberty. That's what this show is really all about. And yes, if there's a pandemic, if there's an economic collapse, you're better prepared to deal with it than most of the people around you. But if society, even with the ups and downs, even with catastrophe and success and catastrophe and that cycle continues to basically exist, you're still better off if you know what you want and if you'll give yourself the permission to create that for yourself. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.